the number one thing you have to do is have conversations with that person, with your insurance advisor from the beginning and just see if they make insurance simple. Welcome to the TCO Method, the only show focused on helping you massively increase your net operating income. I am Andy McQuaid, and thank you so much for tuning in to another Saturday interview special, this time with my special guest, Jeremy Goodrich. Jeremy is the Chief Protection Officer at Shine Insurance Agency, host of the Managing Commercial Real Estate Risk Podcast, and the CRE Risk King on LinkedIn. An expert in CRE risk management and asset protection, Jeremy is a teacher at heart and helps his clients understand the challenging world of real estate insurance and assists them in building a strategy to mitigate and minimize risk and exposure while making sure that they have the right coverage to protect their assets. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate you taking the time. How you been? I've been wonderful, Andy. Thank you for having me. Really excited to chat with you and talk to your audience about um, something that, you know, is a little bit hard sometimes, risk management, but actually, if you think about it, absolutely increases your NOI over and over again as you think about it in your commercial real estate portfolio. So happy to just dig in and uh, share with your audience today. Awesome. Well, we've seen tons of stuff in the news about the uh, shocking or maybe not so shocking developments in Florida and Texas and, and other parts that have been negatively impacted by all this crazy weather that we've been having and just insanity with tenants and all the other stuff. So I guess maybe we start with current events and where the industry is. I know they've been losing their butts for the last several years, mm-hmm. uh, and they've decided this year to really kind of pile on and, and stop losing money. Uh, and there's a lot of people who are cranky about that, but it's a business. So right. it's to be expected that they're not just going to hemorrhage money because people don't want them to have their rates go up. You know what I mean? So why don't we, why don't we start there? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you, you got at the heart of it, right? I mean, when we're looking at insurance, the, the first thing to understand is, you know, insurance is, is, is we're passing risk on to someone else. There are not a lot of people in the world who could go out and buy a $10 million apartment complex uh, by themselves, right? Anybody who's involved in the commercial real estate world knows you have to have a team. That means lenders. That means investors. That means a lot of different things. And one of those folks is the people that you pass the risk of bad things happening onto, right? And that traditionally is your insurance company. And so if we say, okay, well, that makes sense. Now I'm passing risk on insurance companies are actually giving me the ability to do something that I wouldn't have been able to do before. It's like, okay, well, now we get it. All right. So an insurance company is a for-profit business, like you said, Mm -hmm. and they're losing a ton of money, like you said. In 2021, just for example, property, commercial property, um, and this includes a lot of different kinds of property, but the losses for commercial property were about $6 billion, okay? So that's a number, has nothing to connect with. Well, let's give me something more to connect with. In 2022, the losses on commercial property were $36 billion, Now, it doesn't take a rocket science to see that that is six times as much as 2020 and 21. And 2021 was higher than previous years, but but not by much. So in 2022, multiple things happened. One, 
are what's called underwriting losses or the losses the insurance companies took simply by money going out in claims increased sixfold, six times. So that was one thing in 2022. The other thing in 2022 for anyone who invests in stocks, bonds, any of those other places we invest besides commercial real estate is that it wasn't a great year for investing on that side either, right? A lot of people lost a lot of money on that side. Well, where do insurance companies put all the money that they have in holding before that they can you know, pay it out in a claim? Well, they put it into stocks and bonds and real estate and other kind of investments. And so it was sort of a double whammy. Not only did they lose money on the underwriting side, just how much they had to pay out in claims, but they were also losing money on the market. And so insurance companies uh, started to freak out probably is the best word for it. And we saw this in early 2023 where insurance companies were doing one of a few things. One, they were just closing up shop for new business. If you were in Texas, for example, you mentioned Texas as a state that has had a drastic change, right? Um, insurance companies were canceling policies. No one, and then you asked your insurance agent to go out and find a new policy. And they're like, man, there aren't very many people out there. Suddenly your insurance policy is going from $20,000 a year to $100,000 a year or something crazy like that, right? A lot of Texas property owners were experiencing that. Uh, and that was because it's a supply and demand thing. If insurance companies are all shutting down in Texas, then the ones that are left are going to say, huh, well, if I'm going to take the risk, if I'm going to be willing to insure these properties, um, I'm going to charge a lot more money for it. And so yep. that's what we really saw. Um, and that's the, the current market across the country, really, right now. I mean, those losses that I said, 36,000 or 36 billion instead of 6 billion. Um, that is not just Texas. That is not just Florida. That's not just Louisiana. That is across the country that we're seeing. Um, in fact, in 2023 right now, as we're recording, we're in Q3, right, of 2023. Yep. And uh, we've already crossed beyond the $36 billion of underwriting loss that we saw in 2022. So 2023 is already going to be a worse year when it comes to claims, disasters, things of that nature than 2022 was. The good news is that the stock market and that kind of area is doing a little bit better. And so we're seeing the other side of investment potentially looking better. And so if we can just get a few fewer big hurricanes or big storms, I think we could see things turn around a little bit in 2024 and start to see some stabilization in the insurance industry. So that was a quick version. I don't know where you want to go from there, but that's kind of the high level what's going on in the industry right now. So the only the only real question I have that I really kind of cued in on was the potential turnaround in 24. Now typically we're not we don't see companies once they raise rates come back down unless there's some sort of outward market pressure like a commodity where the price drops and then uh, for the raw materials and whatever. In a service business like this where you're literally taking on risk how do, how would they price that in and, and would they lower rates or is that something where we just might see it flatten and then just normalize over time? Yeah, I mean, we're not going to go back to where we were before. I, I don't think Obviously. that's very likely. I think that, it, for example, in Indiana, where I am, you know, we used to be doing uh, for a standard apartment complex, you might expect three to four hundred dollars per unit as an ins annual insurance cost. Right. Um, yeah. That is more like six hundred now. And that's never going to go back down to three to four hundred dollars a year. And it's not the $1,800 that they're seeing in Texas and Florida, but that's again caused by the exit of so many different companies who don't want to underwrite any risk there anymore. Exactly right. So that's going to be the, the big question. 
you know, Florida is used to this in some ways. It still hurts, but Florida, you know, since 06, 07, when a couple of hurricanes came through in a row, um, we had that exodus of insurance companies. We had the supply and demand issue. And so Florida investors t- have seen this before, are, are kind of prepared. I think the investors that are really shocked by what's going on are the Texas investors. And obviously, there's a lot of folks investing in Texas. And Texas mm-hmm. prices used to be significantly lower. You could be in the six to $800 a door, especially if you were in central Texas and even getting closer to the coast you would see some lower numbers. Now, like you just said, if you're coastal Texas with a, a, a frame construction apartment complex uh, that was built before 2005, you should expect $1,500 a door at least getting into that $2,000 a door. And if you're not underwriting that for that, you should be. Um, that hurts. There's just no way around it, especially if you bought a property and you were underwriting it at $600, $700 a door. That could be a huge you know, hit on your NOI. Um, Immediate erosion of asset value overnight. Just absolutely. And, and so, uh, you know, I also see a lot of folks, what you don't want, what I, what I see folks do that is, is, I mean, if you already bought the asset, that's one thing. If you're thinking about buying assets, you know, getting deep into due diligence with a number like $600 a door in coastal Texas or, you know, in the Harris County area or something, you know, you get close to the end and you find out you're actually looking at $2,000 a door, that kills a deal. You got a bunch of, you know, mm-hmm. money on the line at that point. Um, so I'm seeing a lot of carnage, uh, especially in Texas around this insurance things and, and, and property taxes are another piece of the conversation mm-hmm. too. Yeah, the property taxes, um, I think the majority of the property tax impact that people are claiming was unpredictable. It was unpredictable for inexperienced teams underwriting deals. If the value of an asset goes up and you put a note on it and it's recorded at the county, your taxes are going to go up. up. That is like real estate 101. And yet all these people are crying surprise. I don't buy that for a second. I think it's stupidity, but that's me. And uh, and it's my show, so I'll say what I want. (laughs) Well, yeah, if you're you're using the property taxes from uh, you know, the T12s or whatever. And at the same time, you're planning on increasing the value of the property by 10, 15%. And you, you aren't figured that in the taxes, then yeah, you just don't really understand how all this stuff works. Yeah, pretty much. Now insurance, insurance was a little bit of a, of a shocker, but having a relationship with your broker, there should have been a conversation had there like, Hey, listen, this is what we see coming. You probably want to be aware of this. And I know that you're on top of that, right? That's your wheelhouse. That's what you do. Yeah. Just like any other business, any other team that you build, you've got 50% of people who are just show up. And then you've got like another 30% that are decent at what they do, but they're not on top of everything. And then you've got that top 20% and then the, you know, the top five. And I would put you in the top five of, of, of insurance underwriters and operators for real estate in what you do. But most people don't have somebody like you on their team, right? So yeah. what, kind of, what kind of outreach should they be doing proactively now that they've kind of gotten the black eye and the bloody nose? Mm-hmm. How should that relationship look and how do they identify somebody like you that they can find and work with? Now, obviously, you're on my show. I want them to work with you, but... Right. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I work with large portfolios. So my clients have at least 200 units. Most of my clients have thousands of units. So that's kind of the folks that I work with. So a lot of your listeners, 
you know, may not be able to work with me anyway. So really the place I'm coming from is providing advice and insight uh, about the topic. And I think the number one thing you have to do is have conversations with that person, with your insurance advisor from the beginning and just see if they make insurance simple, right? Like, especially in the current market that we're in right now, no one has a crystal ball. No one, including myself, is going to be able to tell you exactly what's going to be happening six months from now, a year from now, two years from now. Um, But someone should be able to make it as simple and clear as possible. So that would be my number one thing to say. I think you have to go with an independent insurance agent. If you, if you only have a couple of, you know, four unit properties or something like that, you can go with the state farms of the world. Um, and that, that will probably work for smaller portfolios. If you're getting into five unit buildings or more or larger portfolios, it's really time to move to someone who can shop for you, who has access to uh, specialized programs that are for these types of properties. An independent insurance agent is going to be the one that has that. So that would be two pieces of advice. And then if you can get someone who really understands commercial real estate, you know, I think that's a big piece. If someone like when I'm thinking about a conversation I have with an individual who's considering purchasing a 300 unit apartment complex, I understand what they're doing. I understand where they're putting the number I'm providing them. And most importantly, I understand how big of a deal that number is to their end of their their decision process, right? When you submit an LOI, when you're going through due diligence, and of course, when you're now into the asset management part of your your, uh, business plan, every line item matters. And if your insurance advisor doesn't understand that, doesn't get that, then they're going to be more likely to say, a number that's lower because now they're trying to attract you. They're trying to fish you in, right? And get you to work with them. And so what's their motivation going to be? Well, they want to say a number that's lower. What I want to say to clients is a conservative number. I want to say a conservative number from the beginning. And I want to say a conservative number for what I believe the increases will be over time. And so it's an entirely different mentality. And if you get roped into the wrong person, they're going to, you know, decrease your NOI, which is the bottom line of the whole thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I I had a conversation with an investor last week who had a fire that took out, had an arsonist who took out two of his buildings on a three building property. Yeah. And he was massively underinsured and had no idea. But he, you know, he he became the victim of the low bid and he listens to this show. So sorry, man, (laughs) I'm using you as an example, but it it is what it is. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I think that's a really key point. You know, your question before was, how do you choose between insurance advisors? And I think that that low bid, usually the lowest price is a problem, right? You want the right. lowest price on the front end because you don't want to pay more than you have to for insurance. It's this thing that like, I'll never have to use it. Nothing bad's going to happen to me. And I hope that's true. I hope that is the case. But for those folks like your friend who have to find out, did I underinsure it? Were there clauses inside the policy that said I would only get depreciated value instead of replacement cost? thousands of dollars that won't get paid out in the situation? Do I have a wind hail deductible that's significantly higher than my other deductible where, again, tens of thousand dollars are being paid out that I didn't realize I would? I've had, um, I have an example that I use in, in classes a lot, um, essentially where someone had a $500,000 claim and in the end got about $100,000 from the insurance company. And that was, um, uh, because of all of those clauses. And I looked at what I had offered that person. So that had person, that person had not chosen me, but when right. they got in that claim situation, when they went through that process, they came back to me and said, Hey, 
Um, for one, they asked me for advice during the claim, which I thought was interesting. But I looked at the policy that I had offered them, which was about 10% more. And my policy would have paid out about $480,000 with a $20,000 wow. deductible. And so, so it, it was about 300, a $300,000, you know, more than $300,000 difference. Um, and, and, but it, you can't blame the investor because this is a, a world that is hard to understand. It's in legal ease. And that's why it's so right. important to trust the person you're working with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, having an expert uh, uh, that can advise you is super important. When you build your team, your team will make or break you, especially in real estate, right? You use your cousin, Ted, who's a real estate agent part-time and he works with homeowners. He's never going to find you the residential never. real estate that you're looking for as an investor. It's just not going to work out. You know, maybe he might get lucky and find you like a lake house you can turn into an Airbnb, but you're going to be buying that at retail. You're not going to be buying that you know, anything but turnkey through that guy. And Absolutely. that's the same thing with your insurance advisors. It's the same thing with your consultants that you bring in. Your attorney needs to be a full-time real estate attorney. Cannot stress enough how specialized and fragmented and just broken up real estate is across the country. Mm -hmm. And every situation is a little bit different, but you need somebody who understands it. And even if they're not familiar with that specific property in that specific market, they're in the game enough where they can figure it out pretty fast. Absolutely. And that's true. Like you said, for I mean, you think about property management, right? If you think about property management, probably the single most important thing that uh, you make a decision about if you're having property managers come on, they're going to make or break your deal. You know, those mm -hmm. people are all going to say that they know how to do what they do. So how do you find out if they really do? Well, you ask other people that they manage properties for. Um, you keep, you know, you trust, but verify, which is important in all the processes. So uh -huh. I think you've got it right. You just really have to make sure that your insurance advisor has access to the best products, has access to the best prices for quality coverage that's actually going to take care of you when something bad happens. Right. Absolutely. And, and you know, something bad will always happen. There will always be that guy, you know, walking down the street. And I use this example because another investor that I am actually partners with on some storage, he had somebody walking by the end of his driveway and there was a pothole. And the guy was like, oh, look, a pothole. And he purposely put his ankle in there and like tried to fall over like five different times, had it on camera, watched the guy do it, didn't stop him from suing. Nope. Like you can see the guy trying to hurt himself in a stupid pothole over yeah. and over again yeah. on camera. Absolutely. And he's still litigating it. And it's been a year and a half. Like, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, those clients I have that have thousands of doors. I mean, every single one of them has some kind of liability claim going on, right? Some kind of yeah. claim. Usually it's a tenant. Usually it's walking out to their car, a sidewalk, a tripping or, you know, Slip some kind fall. of tripping ha hazard and they hire a personal injury attorney. And, you know, most of them don't get a whole lot of money, um, but you still have to be they still have to def the the investor still has to invest them, uh, defend themselves and all that kind of stuff. So, yep, it's just a part of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's an ugly part, but, yeah. you know, it costs money. People wonder why insurance is expensive. People wonder why. You know, construction is expensive. People wonder why all of these things that impact their day-to-day -day lives are so expensive. Mm -hmm. Well, it's because we're a litigious society and there's no loser pays laws. We're one of the only developed countries in the world that doesn't force the, the loser of a lawsuit to pay all the legal fees and bullcrap that goes into defending it. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that there's, and you know, and this is true on the, the liability side with lawsuits and lawyers. And I feel like lawyers should just have to, to, you know, have some consequences for filing frivolous lawsuits. Um, I think on the property side, there's the property, uh, the public adjusters 
who in some situations can be valuable. A public adjuster is someone who you hire to help you navigate the insurance company in a claim situation. And the thing about a public adjuster is they take 20 to 30% of the claim payout, just like uh, an attorney does in a liability scenario. In a property scenario, claims are a lot more clear cut and, and you know, straightforward though. And so you see a lot of prop- public adjusters come in, promise the world, talk about how insurance companies are awful and terrible and they're going to be awful and you're going to hate it. And, and then they get in the middle and they actually make a ton of money off of the situation in a situation that you could have navigated on your own or with a good insurance advisor without a public adjuster. There's right. certainly times when public adjusters are necessary, especially if an insurance company is trying to screw you over. I think that's a time to get a public adjuster involved. But you got to give your insurance company the chance to do the right thing first. Oh, absolutely. And a lot of people don't have any type of industry background to really know that. And so right. what you're sharing right now is going to be hugely valuable if they listen to the show. So yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, in my own personal life, just in my house, I had a tree fall on it and they came out and it was Mika, I think. Mm-hmm. And they're terrible, but mm-hmm. it is what it is. And they came out and they looked at it and they were like, OK, we're going to give you a check for three grand. Mine, me, meanwhile, it's a hip roof. They were only going to cover one face. Yeah. And I've been in the industry long enough. I called a buddy who specializes in just doing fire, water and and storm damage restoration for insurance companies. He brought mm-hmm. his Xactimate on his laptop out and he did the quote. He's like, dude, this is seven and a half grand, eight grand all day long. Yep. Handed that over as an estimate. And they were like, OK, we'll pay it. Yeah. Yes, you will. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think that's the other folks. There are a lot of free folks that you can use in a claim situation that are not going to take 30% of the claim payout, right? The remediation folks who come in and clean up the water or fire damage, things of that nature, those folks should be knowledgeable about the Xactimate system, which is a standardized system for pricing that insurance company professionals and contracting professionals speak the same language in, right? Those folks can help you. The contractors should be knowledgeable. If you're working with contractors in a claim scenario, you should be saying, hey, have you worked with insurance companies before? Are you comfortable with the insurance process? Because it is a specific process. Some contractors want to come in and just charge whatever they want. That is great. That's awesome for them. No problem. But it's not going to work in an insurance claim, right? And so you really want to understand who you're working with through that process. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, you and I have talked in the past about the TCO method and potential for creative underwriting by mitigating risk and all that other fun stuff that goes into Mm -hmm. just planning for stupid putting resiliency into your business plan, making sure that you're prepared for the unexpected because it happens and it should be expected in some cases, right? Like you put water in appliances in a three-story apartment, somebody's eventually going to pull that, that <laughs> stupid refrigerator out from the wall and that right. little plastic elbow that feeds the water is going to break off and you're going to r- have two or three units of flood damage, right? Drywall and all the other stuff. Like there's things you can avoid, right? We call mm-hmm. it the stupid tax. Right. There's yep. stupid tax you can avoid. What are you advising some of your clients to do right now that helps them with the stupid tax? Well, I think that it really comes down to how you set up your risk management system. Now, that sounds really nerdy, but all you're really doing, you're doing this a ton. I mean, due diligence in and of itself during the acquisition process is nothing but an exercise in risk management. Like, what are you doing? You're going and and saying, okay, what is the risk? What is the risk to the profitability? What is the risk to the safety of my tenants? What is the risk to the safety of my employees? What is the risk to my pocketbook and my investment in this deal? 
you're figuring out all the risk associated with that given business, that given apartment complex or given tall building, office building, retail building, whatever it is you're looking at, and deciding whether it makes sense for you to actually acquire and get involved in, right? That's that's a mm -hmm. great risk management strategy that almost every investor has. And if you don't, you should, is your due diligence process from beginning to end. Are you going to snake the sewer system, right? That's a, there's a whole, there's a cost associated with that. Are you going to check the mm -hmm. water lines, check, you know, things that are going out? All of that is risk management. Absolutely. I think that the best thing people can do is just shift their mindset from the idea that they're trying to get away with the cheapest thing in the world to how can we balance taking care of our tenants, taking care of our employees, and taking care of our pocketbooks at the same time. If we put a hand railing into a staircase and that helps an older person get up and down the stairs in a safe way, that, that yeah, sure, that avoids a lawsuit. Absolutely. But it also makes sure that person doesn't actually break their leg. It makes sure that person actually doesn't have to stay home for three months and not go to work because they hurt themselves at your property, right? I mean, things are going to happen, but your strategy with your property around safety um, is, is, is not just about money. It's not just about some insurance company wanting you to do all these things. So, you know, whatever it's about the safety of the entire ecosystem. And I think that mindset mm -hmm. is really key. It is. I, I agree completely. I, I can't tell you how many due diligence walks I go on and they bring me because I look at things that their, their guys don't look at. Right. So I walk in and I see a yellow smoke detector on the ceiling. That's 25 years old. I'm like, that thing doesn't work anymore. There's yeah. no chance. Zero, zero chance. That's actually functional. Well, we, you know, we, we push the button and it beeps. Okay, well, great. So the button works, the battery works, and maybe it's hooked up to the central system. But when a fire happens, it's not going off. Mm -hmm. like it's just there. So that's one of the things it's like, okay, you guys have to gut all of these. Like they all have to go. I don't know what else to tell you. You're not going to like it, but it is what it is. You're, you're going to have to spend time on this. And then all the regular stuff that just breaks down stairways, handrails, mm -hmm. any of that kind of stuff, all of the appliances, all of like, do you have fire stop cans installed? It's something that I've seen operators who have shifted to captives and maybe we'll talk a little bit about that option, but mm -hmm. they've shifted and, and done a captive program where they're going to eat the first part of that risk. Yeah. And part of their risk management became, okay, well, I'm, I'm in these C apartments and yes, we, we supply the appliances, but most of the issues we see are happening at the stove. So we're going to just put stovetop, you know, fire stops in on all the microwaves, all the range hoods underneath the cabinet, if there's neither of those things. And we're just going to tell tenants if their stuff gets stupid, they're, they're going to have fire extinguishing powder all over their food. And it just is what it is. And they don't care. And Mm -hmm. stuff's good for three years it's expensive but from a risk management standpoint if they're going to own the first x number of millions of dollars of liability that they have to write a check for they probably should have something like that in place so mm -hmm. what else are you seeing people do due diligence is hugely important pre-planning for the stupid is hugely important what else are people doing right now obviously they're shopping around they're trying to find the cheapest policies but again that's part of the race to the bottom if they haven't already experienced a catastrophic loss where their insurance didn't cover them, they're just going to take the lowest thing. They always seem to learn through the school of hard knocks. So what's the answer? Like, what else should they be looking at as opposed to just getting bloodied at some point in the future? Yeah. And, and so I, I want to just add on to what you said there, because I think I talk with a lot of investors, you know, and, and when I do the preliminary call with someone to see if they're the right fit for working with me, it's amazing to me how you see two different mindsets. 
And these two different mindsets are always aligned with successful business owners, successful commercial real estate investors, as opposed to folks who are struggling and not getting it done. And the big difference is what you just described there. You know, having, I've had multiple people who talk to me, brag almost about their safety systems, like the fire suppression you just talked about. And they just talk to me in this way that's like, they're almost, I don't want to say they're pumped about it because that's probably going a little bit too far. But, you know, they're, they're really proud of the safety systems that they put in. And of course, they know they're talking to a risk manager. So I'm a person who's going to appreciate it, right? But right. these are people who are proud of the systems that they've put in place, proud of the way they take care of their tenants, proud of what they're doing and how they're doing it. And of course, it's based on a strong fiscal you know, system and business plan. Those people are successful. I would say almost 100% of the people who come to me and are talking in that way are successful in their business. The people who are talking to me about price, who are talking to me about cutting corners, who are trying to figure out if there's some secret way I can get them the cheapest insurance policy in the world, um, those people also tend to not have successful business plans. And so I'm, again, I'm coming back to it's really about mentality and it's about, you know, almost a scarcity mindset versus, you know, an abundance mindset. And I think having a strong risk management strategy is about abundance. But your question is a fair one. Look, listeners are saying, Jeremy, you can say all this stuff, whatever. In the end, if, if insurance doesn't have a cost that's reasonable, it doesn't work for me. Um, the deal doesn't work for me. And so for smaller investors, I think a lot of the strategies of, you know, finding the right advisor, finding someone who can find good deals for you, by, you know, at getting quotes from a few folks. Now, generally with an independent insurance agents, they're getting quotes for you. And if you ask three different independent insurance agents to get quotes for you, they actually step on each other's toes and it actually yeah. creates more problems than good things. But, you know, if you're getting a few proposals to make sure you're getting the right price, that's good. Um, increasing your deductible, and this will get to the captive thing sort of, you know, quickly. I think you brought it up and I think we should talk about it. Um, you know, so an investor, when you buy a house, a lot of uh, personal insurance, uh, homeowners insurance, you have like a $1,000 deductible or a $2,000 deductible, right? That can make sense in that situation. For property investors, why have such a low deductible? You don't necessarily want to make tiny claims anyway, because it's going right. to affect your premium in the future. And mm -hmm. so can you increase that deductible? What does your capital situation give you the opportunity to do? Can you increase it to 5,000? Can you increase it to 10,000? As I get to right. larger portfolios, portfolios that work with me more often, can we get to 25,000? Can we get to 50,000, right? Now we've got a really high deductible. You know, a $50,000 deductible sounds high, but if you've got a thousand units and you've got a master policy that's over all this stuff, you know, right. you've got tons of capital that you're not working, you know, and as it gets higher, we start to get into the idea that you can retain more and more of the risk associated with your properties. That's all increasing a deductible is, right? right. You're saying, I'll take the first 5K. I'll take yep. the first 10K. What happens if you said, I'll take the first million? Now, most of your listeners probably saying, well, it would mean I would be in trouble, right? And, and so that's true. But, but for investors, you know, a, a lot of the investors out there are spending two, three, four million dollars or more on insurance premium. When you're right. getting to that size, the question for me is what, what would it look like for you to take the first million? And this is where something called captive insurance can really help mm -hmm. you because lenders aren't going to let you take the first million on your own. It's not going to work, but you can create right. your own little tiny insurance company 
and and say, well, this insurance company is going to take the first million dollars and I'm going to put some money in there. Mm -hmm. And if there is a claim, the first million dollars comes out of my pocket. Right? Right. Yeah. If there isn't a claim, though, I get to keep that million dollars. If I don't right. spend it in that year, then I get to keep it. Right. And of course, mm -hmm. what's that going to do? If I take a million dollar deductible, what's that going to do to my insurance costs for everything above that? Well, it's going to make it way cheaper. Yeah, and absolutely. so captive insurance is a great solution for taking on more of the risk, but keeping more of your own money in a way that lenders will accept and works inside the system. Absolutely. So my my first experience with captives was uh, a very large operator or family office I was working with. They were based out of Jersey and they had picked up a 2,400 unit apartment complex on 256 acres in Michigan yeah. and they had to do a captive. And so when they built this, there were all these hoops they had to jump through to get compliant with their risk management strategy at that property. And it was a property that had been owned by one dude developed over 30 years, building buildings right through the eighties, started in the set started in the early sixties, built it right through the early eighties. And so there were 19 or 20 different unit types and 300 plus buildings, you know, golf course, pools, pretty cool. whole nine yards. It was a beautiful property, right? Huge upside because the rents were way down. They bought it for a song. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, it didn't owe them anything right off the bat. They made a couple hundred million dollars just by acquiring the property without even having to do any work to it. So cool. Yeah. Uh, but they had to do a captive. And so they were going through and, and that was really where the smoke detector thing, that was really where I cut my teeth figuring out, Oh, well, this, this stuff doesn't actually like these old ones that are 40 years old. They don't do anything anymore. They don't function. So, um, had good advisors there. We had good, good stuff. We had to find a self lit, self illuminated exit sign for every single hallway in every single part of the building mm -hmm. because none of them were there and the cost to hardwire it was astronomical. Yeah. So we were able to locate a basically a radioactive glow in the dark. It was tritium. It was a tritium exit sign and we oh. had to buy thousands of them, wow. thousands of them. Yeah. But in the end of the day, they saved a ton of money. They, they established the captive for that particular property and they were able, I think they're actually using it across their entire portfolio now, which is getting close to 20,000 doors. Yeah, it's a great so. example. And, and they're, you know, if they have a year where they have significant losses, then the captive, you know, probably doesn't help them a ton, right? Because they're, they're losing the money out of pocket that they would have paid in insurance premiums. But the place that a captive really helps is those years that you don't have as many claims. And then you get to, you know, if they had $3 million in insurance premium for that particular property, and they were able to retain a million dollars of that premium and just put it into the captive, then if they have a claim, if they have a million dollars in claims, well, they spent about the same amount of money that they would have anyway. And if they right. don't, then they keep that million dollars, can reinvest it and turn it over. That is the beauty of captives. The other value of captives is there are some properties that are just simply not capable of finding standard insurance anymore. I mean, Louisiana right. Coast is probably the biggest example. A captive uh, that recently... I was a part of had a $17 million captive. This person had a ton of capital uh, and they took on $17 million of exposure primarily because they just couldn't get property insurance for these properties on the coast of Louisiana from anybody that was reasonable. And because wow. they had the capital to do it, they essentially completely self-insured 
with that $17 million. Now that's just an extreme example, but when you're talking about 20,000 units, like you just described, it's just a bunch of extra zeros on the end. Yep. And, and so a lot of things can happen. You know, a lot of your listeners, this is a, a far off into the future uh, of their portfolio journey. But, you know, for folks who have even a thousand doors or, or 1500 doors, a captive is something that at least your insurance advisor should be saying why they feel it's not the right option for you if they're not saying it is. Right. And I and, and again, it comes down to who's on your team and what do they know and how experienced are they in the industry? I can guarantee you that the vast majority of people at my local RIA and that listen to this show aren't there, haven't dealt with it unless they've worked for a commercial real estate brokerage at some point in the past, or they're doing like syndications or something like that. Now, what I've also seen is a lot of these newer operators and not dissing anybody who's listening to the show, but a lot of newer operators have spent the last 10 or 15 years with ZERP, right? Zero interest rates. So money's been cheap. Mm -hmm. A lot of operators didn't even have cash reserves because the cash was so cheap and easy to get. They could just draw it off their line of credit and pay 3% or 4%. And anything under 4% is free money. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, their risk of exposure, if they had to tap into some sort of, of capital, access capital, they could just go to their lender or pull it from their their line of credit that they have at their bank on their on their business. And now that's not the case because suddenly the cost of capital has doubled. So you guess what? You have to have cash reserves now. You have to be able to plan your capital expenditures. And a lot of them have no experience with planning capital expenditures. They have no experience with estimating timelines for failure on stuff like anything other than a furnace or a hot water tank. Those are always the hot ones everybody talks about when they take these guru courses. Always check the dates on your furnaces and hot water tanks. Check the dates on your roof mm. and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's great. But what about all the other crap that has a limited lifespan that's in your apartments, that's in your properties that you're going to need to deal with if you're going to hold this asset for anything longer than a couple of years? Like, yeah. And I think that's where it comes down to your due diligence checklist is, you know, from acquisition to asset management, right? Uh, your acquisition checklist is the first example of what you're talking about. But your asset management checklist that you should be, you know, you should have your weekly checklist, you should have your monthly checklist, you should have your six month checklist, and you should have your annual checklist. And you should be working with your property manager to make sure that either they are doing it or someone on your asset management team is doing it. And if your property manager is doing it, there has to be a clear reporting system so that they can tell you how those things are turning out and you have to make sure they're doing it. You may have to pay a little bit of extra to have your property manager do it. Um, but it's a lot less than you're going to have to pay if you have someone trip and fall or, you know, those kinds of things. So, right. And it's, go ahead. I was, I was just going to say, it's very important when you're vetting your property manager that when you want to do extra stuff, right. When you want to do extra due diligence, when you want to do extra checks, extra unit inspections, extra risk management assessments, whatever it is. Changing how your property manager does business every day is going to be an uphill battle you will never win. Mm. It's just like when you're, in my experience, it's been when you're going out and you are trying to convert, you know, people off of Sherwin Williams to like another brand of paint, whether it's Benjamin Moore or Glidden or whatever. The painters want what they want, and they will find every excuse in the book to not do what you're asking them to do and why this other stuff is junk, and they just want their stuff, and they don't want to have to worry about it or think about it. And the conversion costs you more money than anything you would have saved by switching vendors. And it's, it's the same thing, I think, when you're looking at 
property managers, if they're not that caliber where they're already involved in that part of the process, I, I don't think it's going to go well. Yeah. I think that change management is very expensive. And most property management companies, unless they've been able to systematize and scale, are not equipped to handle any type of change because they're being operated typically by people who were really good at whatever they were doing and wanted to expand, but don't have any actual experience running a, a corporate enterprise where, where constant improvement and efficiency is a thing. Yeah. And, and I think that's where you get into if you, what you need more than anything from every person on your team is clarity. If the person, if the property manager says, look, here's what I do. I'm not interested in doing all your extra stuff. I'm not in, interested in all these additional checklists, but I am really good at the foundational things I do. We do leasing well, we do maintenance well, we do a really good job of this at, you know, these X, Y, Z. If that's true, that's fine. Maybe you just need someone who's boots on the ground to do that for you and has some equity ownership or something like that. Maybe your asset manager is in the same town and can do that themselves. What you need from every member of your team, from insurance to property management to accountants and beyond, is clarity. And with that clarity, you can decide how to navigate from there. Absolutely. I think that's great. So I think we're coming up to the tail end. We've spent about 40 minutes so far. And it has been hugely inf insightful for me. Hopefully, it's insightful for the audience. What else have we not touched on yet that you think needs to be keyed in on? I think we've really dug in. I mean, we've talked about the current state of the insurance market. It is what it is. And we have to realize that. We have to underwrite for it. We have to adjust our business plan for it. And we have to have really good advisors that make sure we're getting the best scenario we can. We've talked about taking on more of the risk ourselves for small investors. That's just a slightly higher deductible for bigger investors. That's higher and higher deductibles all the way to a captive structure where you're actually taking on large portions of the risk yourselves. We've talked about not going for the cheapest policy because it's going to burn you in the end. And the example of the person who chose a 10% cheaper policy than the one I offered and ended up getting about $100,000 in a claim scenario instead of $480,000 in a claim scenario. And we've just talked about clarity across your strategy when it comes to team, making sure that every member of your team is clear in what they're doing, is capable of handling the piece of the puzzle that they're playing, and they're an A player in the game. When I look at my team, my business is an insurance agency, right? I turn around and look at my team and look at all the players and I look around and I see A players and there've been some B players and there've been some C players and it's been a little tough to kind of move and change seats and, and ultimately uh, move those folks out of the uh, organization. But if you look at your team and you look at A players, um, then you're doing things right. And if you're not looking at A players, then you've got to think about how can I start to get A players in? Maybe you're newer, so it's harder to get A players at that point, right? right. So how can I get a B player? How can I get someone who's you know, a, a B player trying to be an A player. It's sort of like a C-class property trying to be a B-class property. Who's right? coachable? Yeah, who's coachable? Who can I take in that scenario? So at some point as a commercial real estate investor and as a business owner, you realize that the primary role that you play is team manager, is, you know, the person who's making the baseball team. You're, you're not hitting the balls anymore. You're not catching the, fl the fly balls. You're the one finding the people who are doing that. And I think that transition is hard for a lot of people. But if you really mm -hmm. want to succeed in commercial real estate, you've got to understand that and you got to start building teams with A players. 
I do not disagree in any way with any of that. That is spot on. And so I have two questions. The first one is, and this is an outlier specific to somebody that I know. Again, they had a, I think it was a five family. It was either four family or five family that partially burned, but it was condemned. They found out that they were underinsured, not because of the value replacement value of the property, but because they didn't have a demo, a demolition rider and the demolition for the building because of where it was in the city was over $96,000. Right. So is that typical where replacement value is covered and then you have to deduct your, your demo value from it? Or is there a demo rider you can get put in there to cover removal costs in a weird area where there's lots of power lines and it's tight and the demolition itself, because maybe there's asbestos or lead or whatever, they have to spend extra money for disposal and safely tearing that down. Is that typical or is that just something that we see more in the Northeast where there's just a lot of lead paint, a lot of asbestos and bull crap? Well, it's, it depends on the policy. So insurance policies have endorsements on them and these are all little additional things. Some of them take away coverage. Some of them add coverage, you know, an endorsement will say, we won't cover flood, which is a common exclusion, right? That's an exclusion. Or an endorsement say, we will cover water backup, which is when sewers back up, but we'll only cover it for $25,000, not for the entire right. limit. So it's impossible for me to say, until I look at a policy, how demolition is handled. Most quality policies do have that as an endorsement, just sort of built in to the standard policy. Um, but if you get into uh, higher risk properties, uh, again, back to the coast, because they're just the easiest high risk properties, a lot of those things get stripped out. So talking to your yeah. insurance advisor, you know, you can't talk to your insurance advisor about every single thing. But again, it comes back to quality. Is it more likely right. to be in a quality policy? Yes. If you have a concern, you're in a city and you're downtown or something like that. Uh, you know, what about ordinances as well? What if you're building half burns, you've got to rebuild, but now you got to put an elevator in because now you got right. to fit ADA laws where you didn't have to before. Well, that's making the building better than it was before. And that is not included in your standard building coverage. That's included in what's called ordinance and law coverage. I think a listener right now is going, wait a minute, this is just like, it's starting to become too much. Too much. And I think Over that's there. why, you know, you just have to back off and trust the team member who's the knowledgeable person in there. You don't go through every single line of your lease you ask your lawyer to help you with it, right? Yep. You read your lease, you surface read your lease because you want to understand yep. it. So trust but verify is my best answer. And Perfect. that particular example should have had coverage in the policy. I'd have to look at the policy to really know that. Right. And then I guess the very last thing, which maybe is completely a non-factor, all these lawsuits and failed syndications, right? Capital calls, all this insanity going on in multifamily, specifically right now from inexperienced underwriters, inexperienced operators, capital Absolutely. raisers, and GPs that have no business being involved in commercial real estate, but are doing it anyway. What has that done to the costs of insurance and how is that impacting the industry? What are you seeing on your end? Or is it just a non-factor? It's just stupid people doing stupid things like always. And it's the next wave of, of grift that we're just going to have to work through. Well, I'm a passive investor too. So I'm involved in a couple of deals, at least one right now that's not doing particularly well. So I'm very familiar with exactly what you're talking about. I, you know, from the insurance perspective, I think it, it affects in the sense that you're more likely to have lower risk management. You're more, you know, everything we've talked about in this conversation 
is done well by good investors, by good sponsorship team, by people who have done this over and over again, who have systems and successfully do it. Where are the problems with folks who aren't as good at it, who don't have as much experience, who make mistakes, and then suddenly there's a fire, suddenly there's a lawsuit, suddenly there's something going on there. So I don't know that the the experience is a direct relationship with the cost of insurance, but the fact that claims are high anyway, you know, more of that inexperience is going to be more mean more claims, which ultimately turns around to higher costs for uh, folks trying to get insurance. Not exactly a direct re- relationship, though. Well, I see it in in what I do because most syndications, if they're if they're doing the typical now, which is the five hundred six, they're only going to hold that for five to seven years, right? On that's mm-hmm. on the outside. Yeah. So they're planning for immediate returns and immediate re- immediate return of capital to the investors, so they can pay what they need to pay, which means that they're cheaping out and participating in the race to the bottom on the front, which in and of itself increases risk because they're going to be using cheaper product, lower resiliency lower lifespan, lower useful life. The units are going to get beat faster. They're going to have to do rehabs and turns immediately after they dump that asset, which means that they're eroding asset value as they go because they're taking this this thing they took from a C to maybe a B minus. And by the time they're done with it, it's going to be whooped again and it's going to be a C. So yeah. for, for me, that raises risk. Oh yeah. And another example is, you know, a lot of these 70s bills, late 60s, early 70s builds, you know, they're the lowest hanging fruit for someone who's a new investor. The price is really mm-hmm. low on them. So it seems like a really good opportunity. What you're missing is aluminum wiring that's potentially causing a lot of fires oh, and making yeah. insurance a lot more expensive, you know, oh, breaker yeah. boxes. And a lot of those newer investors aren't going to invest the capital to actually increase it, you know, fix it to where it's at safe. And so you get a lot of problems there. So this is what I want to do. Tell everybody who's listening what your your ideal client is, how you can help them, where they can find you. So, uh, you know, my ideal cl- client is someone who embodies the things we've talked about in this conversation, who is a, a risk manager at heart, who has a mentality of keeping their, their employees safe, their tenants safe, their business safe, both financially and physically, um, who has a larger portfolio. Like I said, my minimum is 200 units. And so uh, has to be uh, in that larger space and someone who really wants some creative solutions, um, an advisor who is going to be a part of the team. So that's what I'm looking for. As far as where you can find me, it's shineinsurance.com. I actually have for multifamily investors at shineinsurance.com slash ballpark, a nine yes or no question, a ballpark advisor that'll give you immediately um, an insurance ballpark you can use for penciling. So that's pretty helpful. Bookmark that and just use it when you're penciling. Uh, deals. Uh, so that's at shineinsurance.com slash ballpark. Everything else is at shineinsurance.com. That is awesome. Thank you, Jeremy, so much. If you enjoyed this episode, please, if you're on YouTube, ring that bell, subscribe. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, wherever else you get your podcasts, please subscribe, leave us a review, and leave a comment. If you have questions, you can email podcast at tcomethod.com. Please visit Jeremy's site, Check out his awesome tool he's providing for free for everybody to help them with their underwriting. And we'll see you next time.